last week we started Jeremiah. We finished the first two chapters. One of the things that I find difficult with Jeremiah is figuring out who he's talking about and often figuring out who's talking. Figuring out who's talking, I am going to, quite frankly, take the quotation marks of the translator. The translator, in this case, is English Standard. That's the version I happen to be using. But he goes back and forth between Israel and Judah. He drops in and out of quotations and so forth. And sometimes it's just a little difficult to follow. So last week, all of chapter 2, we're in 2-4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. So that seems to be everybody, both Judah and Israel. Maybe, maybe not. So we go through chapter 2, long, poetic section. And as Tom remarked last time, very emotional. All through chapter 2, he hasn't changed the one he's talking to, or at least not that I know of. So now in chapter 3, let me read this poetic section and then talk about it. So chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes out from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Will not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and you would return to me, declares the Lord. You all know your Torah. If a man divorces his wife and she marries somebody else, then he is forbidden to take her back. She marries somebody else and that doesn't work out. Husband number one isn't allowed to take her back. Verse 2, lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Obviously, he's talking about unfaithful Israel and Judah, and it isn't real clear at this point who that is. God regards covenant breaking as adultery. He regards himself as a spouse to Israel, and when Israel goes after other gods, that is regarded as adultery. Now, in all of this, as we go on, there's sort of two things going on, and they get intertwined because they are related. One is going after idols, which God regards as adultery, and the other is having a corrupt, unjust society. The corrupt, unjust society is not considered adultery, it's just wickedness. And very often what will happen with just unjust society is God will let consequences flow because your society will become dysfunctional. But when you have adultery in the spiritual sense, The thing about idols, of course, is the moral code, if you will, under idolatry inexorably leads to a corrupt society. 
So society can get corrupted in two ways. Way number one is just plain old normal human sin. And that will corrupt, but it doesn't necessarily result in adultery, which is idol worship. And then the other one is idol worship, which is adultery, which also leads to a corrupt society. So you can get to a corrupt society a couple of ways, and depending on how you get there, God's reaction is somewhat different. And then at the end, verse 4, Have you not just now called to me, my father, you are the friend of my youth? Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? And that is Israel, who has gone into spiritual adultery, calling out to God, and God leads the chapter with, if you go off to somebody else and then you want to return to me, that's not permitted. And then at the end, you have this, well, are you going to be mad at me forever? In other words, can I come back? And the answer to that is up at the beginning, no, you can't. One of the things that we're going to see over and over in Jeremiah is, have you not just now called to me, my father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? That reads very much like Psalms. In other words, God, if you call out to him, will not be angry forever. So what Israel is doing here, or Judah, I'm not sure which one we're talking about, is they are quoting Bible passages out of context and with the wrong heart. And we'll see that more and more as we go through this. So one of the things that they'll say as we get further along is everything's going to be okay. That's the temple of the Lord. And yeah, it is and it was, but God's no longer there. But they're still calling on it, even though they aren't doing anything godly. The same kind of thing is happening here. They are calling out to God as if they were worthy of him hearing them, but Everything leading up to it here has indicated that they have been in spiritual adultery. And so at that point, it's sort of like the adulterous wife who gets caught and says, Honey, won't you take me back? Just to avoid consequences, not because she intends to restore the marriage. Verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? So we're talking about the northern kingdom here. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she played the whore. I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Now, that would indicate that the first part of chapter 3 is probably talking about Israel, because remember, we talked about a divorce. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Verse 10. 
Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And that was what I was talking about earlier, where in verse 4 it says, My father, you are the friend of my youth. In other words, oh, come on, honey, you can overlook something like that. So what he's saying here is her pretense of returning to him was not genuine. It was simply to evade the consequences of getting caught. Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north, and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. So the deal here is Israel is gone. They have been sent into exile by the Assyrians. Judah was left after the exile for something like 120, 25 years, something like that. So now Judah is proving herself to be even worse than Israel was. And so what God is saying is look to the north, and the north is where Israel was sent into exile. In other words, the Syrians came down from the north, took Israel, and took them up to the north. So when it says say to the north, what he's saying is call to those people who are in exile. And it's interesting how he says it. Return, faithless Israel. I know you're a whore, but come back. Here's sort of the the sense of it, if you will. So return, faithless Israel, I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. What this is talking about, obviously, is the reuniting of Israel and Judah sometime in the future. The thing I find interesting is, I'm assuming he hasn't lost track of them. He, being God and having really great databases, knows where the descendants of the northern kingdom are. And the thing that's interesting here is he will take one from a city and two from a family. And I sort of get the impression that that is not every descendant is going to come back. A companion piece to that is Romans, where Paul says, not everyone who was born of Abraham is an Israelite. You're an Israelite who is one spiritually, not just physically. So I'm suggesting that that may be the same idea here. Or this may be where Paul got that idea, seeing as how Paul is obviously much later. So what he's doing is he's calling to faithless Israel, the northern kingdom. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back. And I am going to read that as the ones who repent. So where he's saying, verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt. It doesn't say this explicitly, but I get the feeling here that when he takes one from a city and two from a family, it is going to be those who repent and are brought back. So now to verse 15. 
And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Verse 17. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave their fathers for a heritage. Two things. Obviously, Israel was scattered to the north. Judah is also going to be exiled to the north. The Babylonians are going to take them north. So everybody is north. They will get shepherds after his own heart, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord will not be remembered. One of the things that happened in the Babylonian captivity is the Ark was lost. Nobody knows where it is. Commentary I read goes with my Bible program remarked on this, that it's really much the same thing as Ezekiel's millennial temple, where you have the presence of Yeshua himself in the city as governor. So there isn't any need for the Ark of the Covenant any longer. If you have the presence of the Messiah himself in town, you don't need an Ark where God can speak to you. So in the return, it says... You won't remember the ark, and nor will you build another one. question was, at the beginning of the chapter, God says, if a man divorces his wife and she becomes another's wife, he can't take her back. That's what Moses says. Thing one. Thing two is he sent Israel off with a decree of divorce because of adultery, and she went off. So then he says, if you repent, you can come back. So how does that work? Great question. I will give you an interesting answer. And I don't know if this is true or not. But it says in Romans that if the husband of a woman dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So if she becomes a widow, she's no longer married to this guy and is free to marry somebody else. As long as her husband's alive, she can't do that. This is not original with me. Somebody says, well, wait a minute. Yeshua died and was raised again, but he died. Hence, Israel's husband, quote, unquote, has died. So now when she comes back, her husband at the time is not taking her back, it, he is a born-again husband. You're not the only one that has seen this contradiction, where you've got that kind of a word tangle. And the answer that I have heard that sort of makes sense is the husband died. And so now what you have is a new born-again husband. And as I say, one attempt to answer that question without saying, well, he's God and he can do anything he wants. That's the other possible answer is he's God and he can do that if he wants to. 
is, in fact, technically, you have a death. And the other part of that is the reason you have a logic problem here is because of the idea that Scripture is logical and fallible and God is not ever inconsistent. And that may not be the case. So I don't know. That's the best I got. So we've now invited Israel back and we have said that at the time that Israel comes back in verse 18 in those days the house of Judah will join the house of Israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage this is obviously new covenant territory because when we get to Jeremiah 31 what we'll see is that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have come back together in the new covenant. So this is saying the same thing. This is new covenant territory. And this, by the way, reads as if the new covenant will be enforced in the millennial kingdom as opposed to in the new heaven and the new earth, which I suspect it will also be in in force. Verse 19, I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land a heritage, most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So now he's talking to the house of Israel, the northern kingdom who is in exile. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are delusion, the orgies of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Several voices here. A voice on the bare height, this is God speaking. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will hear your faithlessness. Also God. Now, change of voice, this is now the sons. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly, the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So that is the faithless sons who are regretting the fact that they followed after pagan gods and the orgies on the hill are both spiritual and probably physical because that's one of the attractions of pagan gods is weird sex. This is still the sons of wayward Israel. 24, but from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. This is the repentance confession if you will of the northern kingdom those that are left as they are asking to come back 
and they repent. One of the things that I have said back in 24, but from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. The idea here is when you go into idolatry and you leave the teaching of Moses, bad things happen to you that are not necessarily caused by God. The consequences of behavior like that are self-enforcing. And one of the things that is this idea that Israel and Judah are so pig-headed in their sin, and there's a passage in Proverbs, I think, where when you get drunk, you get a beating and you don't feel it. Only the next morning you wake up and you got bruises all over you, but you didn't feel it at the time. Sort of like that with Israel and Judah as they have gone off into idolatry and so forth. Bad things are happening to them, but they don't feel it. They don't repent. They don't take the lessons that they're intended to learn from those consequences to heart. Chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, if you swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. The problem is they are swearing as the Lord lives, but not in truth, justice, and righteousness. It has simply become a phrase in the culture. It isn't spoken righteously. Three, for thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, now the audience has changed. We've been talking to Israel, the northern kingdom. Now we're focusing on the southern kingdom. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This idea of circumcising your heart is Deuteronomy chapter 10, where Moses has two circumcisions of the heart in Deuteronomy. First one in chapter 10 says you do it, and then in chapter 30, it says, at the end of the day, you're not going to do a very good job, so God will do it. And when God does the circumcision of the heart, then we're in New Covenant territory. But in the meantime, you really ought to try your best to follow the law, the Torah. And so what is being said here to Judah, who has not yet gone into exile, they're on the way, but they haven't done it. So you circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And then this break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns, what he's saying there is because you are following idols and because you are not walking in Torah, the things that you do that should be productive are as productive as sowing wheat among thorns. Your society has become so bad and so corrupt that it's just like you walked out into a briar patch and sowed all your wheat in the briar patch. You sowed your wheat, but it doesn't do you any good. That's the metaphor that's being said there. Verse 5, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet through the land. Cry aloud and say, Assemble, 
and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring evil from the north, and great destruction. A lion has gone up from its thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Just blow the trumpet throughout the land, which is to say the Babylonians have been mounted up. They're heading this way. Get yourself ready, but it's not going to do any good. Verse 9. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, now this is Jeremiah speaking. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people at Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. So Jeremiah is saying to God, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You've been saying to Jerusalem that everything will be okay. Now, what I take that to mean is, in the past, God has indeed said that about Jerusalem. But it's not unconditional. As we go through this, we're going to get these Bible sound bites by the people of Judah and Jerusalem that says, oh, nothing bad is going to happen to us. One of the metaphors they'll use is Jerusalem is like a copper kettle and we're inside and there's no way they can get at us. So all of this is going to be Jerusalem is a safe place. Jeremiah is saying, God, did you just deceive these people because you've always said Jerusalem was going to be a safe place and now you're saying it isn't going to do any good. Verse 11, at that time it will be said to the people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. And the idea is a hot wind is coming. You all know how to winnow wheat. You get up on a ridge and you thresh it and you throw it up in the air and the wind carries the chaff off. So wind in that case is beneficial because it is helping you thresh your grain. This wind is not going to be beneficial. It's going to be too strong for threshing grain, so it will not winnow or cleanse. It is a hot wind, if you will. 13. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem, besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. So this idea of a voice from Dan and Mount Ephraim, again, the Babylonians are coming from the north. 
So the first place that they're going to go through is Dan. The next place they're going to go through is Ephraim. So that's the progression that they have to march in order to get to Jerusalem. So the voices from Dan and Ephraim and so forth are people, watchmen perhaps, who are saying, hey, hey, they're coming, they're coming. And that's the sense of this. Verse 19. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard upon crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? And it isn't clear, by the way, who's speaking here. This may be God or it may be Jeremiah. It isn't real clear to me. Verse 22. For my people are foolish. They know me not. So this sounds very much like God. For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise at doing evil. But how to do good, they do not know. One of the things that you can say about evil is it may be stupid, but it's not unsophisticated. Evil people are often very clever. 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountain, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all the cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now it looks like we're talking about Jeremiah. Voices change. So, for example, it looks like verse 22 is God speaking, and it looks like verses 19 through 26 are Jeremiah speaking. The comment was that 22 could also be Jeremiah For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, they have no understanding. They are wise at doing evil, but how to do good they know not. And the comment was, this could also be Jeremiah, as in, I'm a prophet and they don't pay attention to me. And that's certainly possible. The translator of my version has put that in quotes. So the translator of this thinks that this is Jeremiah, Jeremiah quoting God, than Jeremiah again. I'm not arguing with you, I'm just saying that's what the translator that I have thinks it is. And by the way, obviously, in 23, I looked at the earth and behold, it was out form and void. That's obviously Genesis 1. So what you have with the evocation of the image of Genesis 1 is you have a backing out of the creation, poetically. So he starts with Genesis 1, and instead of separating the heavens from the earth and the sea from the land and all that kind of stuff, all of these things are being destroyed and shaken. 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, I will not turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. 
They enter thickets. They climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. My translation, verse 27 and 28 are God speaking, and then 29 is the prophet. That's the punctuation that my version has. So 29 again. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets. They climb among rocks. All the cities are forsaken, and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. So the sense of that here is Israel has played the whore with foreign gods. They have also made alliances with the nations whose god those are. So they made alliances with Egypt and alliances with various people. So when trouble is on the way, she gets herself all tarted up and make herself attractive to her lovers, which is to say the nations that she has made treaties with, and it's not going to work. That's the sense of the metaphor there. And then the end of it, woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. What that says, at least I think what it says, and not sure about this, is she sees the Babylonians coming down from the north and she's screaming murder because she will not recognize that they have been sent by God. She doesn't see that as a judgment of God. She sees that as, I'm being molested. That's how I think that reads, but I'm certainly not positive. Back to verse 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end, which is to say Israel is not going to be wiped out. They're going to be taken off into captivity. They're going to continue to exist as a people. On Nebuchadnezzar's first trip, he leaves some people in Jerusalem, and he leaves the nation intact and expects them to pay tribute. Then they rebel against him and refuse to pay tribute, and that's when he comes back the second time and levels the place to include the temple and lays the whole thing flat. It's entirely human. And the thing about it is we can all recognize human behavior in all of this. That's the way people are. (laughs) 